globalize or deglobalize. Where we are in deglobalization. They think the, the, the talk of deglobalization has been overdone. So how does globalization impact? Where are we in that? This is Alkis, and you're listening to the Greekonomics Podcast, the show that explores how social, technological, and economic conditions will affect the businesses of the future, with a focus both on the Greek economy and worldwide. We are at the end of globalization. We've taken globalization for granted, and as we move on to the next big stage of humanity, we are going to miss it. The second wave of globalization began in the early 90s and it delivered a great deal of benefits. Billions of people rose out of poverty. More impressively, wealth per adult in countries like Vietnam and Bangladesh increased by over six times in the last 20 years. More countries formed democracies including the lights of Estonia, Malaysia and China. The role of women also improved in many parts of the world. If you look at wage equality in countries like Spain or access to education in countries like Saudi Arabia. Globalization changed our diets. It changed how we communicate, how we consume news and entertainment, how we travel and how we work. However, some of its advantages have also backfired with record levels of indebtedness and inequality. Especially foreign indebtedness. Some countries have managed to distribute the benefits of globalization well, such as the Netherlands and Ireland using progressive taxes and social welfare programs. Others like Russia and the US have not. Income inequality in the US after the tax cuts and deregulation of the 1970s has skyrocketed. By the way, there is a great lecture published by Stanford of Professor Saez. You can watch it if you want uh, as it explains this trend really well. But this inequality exacerbated and most importantly highlighted by the pandemic has convinced many people that globalization is against them and that the bounties of globalization have not been shared with the many. So now here we are at the end of an era of in history, an era that began with the fall of communism that initiated a great flow of trade of people and of ideas and that now comes to an end with events like the shutting down of democracy in Hong Kong. Here's the big question. What's next? Let's split this case into two parts. Now, on a smaller scale, and then the future, on a larger scale. What will happen now? Actually, the issue that will be affected now, in my opinion, being an economics podcast as well, is inflation. While globalization reduced production and labor costs, the current trend toward globalization is characterized by high tariffs and geopolitical tensions that threaten to make surging prices a fixture of the global economic landscape, making the coordinated response between countries a priority. What are these characteristics? Less global trade, unwinding capital flows, and the declining influence of multilateral institutions. And that is bad for inflation, quite obviously, since globalization was one of the leading deflationary forces during the past few years. Furthermore, it is not a short-term event like a war, even though at this point I don't, I don't even know if the Russia-Ukraine conflict is going to last and how long. Yet, a long-term trend, meaning that 
this is going to have a permanent effect on future inflation, requiring even more attention, especially with the ongoing uh, Sino-American conflict, the conflict between China and the US, which started all the way from the 1950s, I think, after the Korean War. It an area marked by a widening ideological divide and a balkanized global economy seems a lot more likely as time passes by. Even the barriers to migration would make it harder for US companies to attract top global talent and drive up labor costs, the thing that I believe has been a leading factor in the rapid technological development of the US. Even I am going to the US to study, and this shows how it shows the fact that uh, the U.S. is attracting their top talent from countries around the world and how it is a crucial piece in its economic engine. Another thing that needs to be mentioned is the absence of monetary policy coordination, particularly among developed economies, which may exacerbate global price increases. Unlike the coordinated monetary response to the 2008 global financial crisis, it seems that policymakers today operate a bit on their own in this fight against inflation. The absence of global cooperation hurts many of the world's most susceptible countries and it hurts them the most. When major central banks hike interest rates, they export inflation. What I mean is that it creates import-led inflation. The US dollar, for instance, has written a lot lately due to sharp interest rate hikes. Now let's move on to the larger scale. Before. The world tried to come together based on common economic goals and geography. Now, it will be defined according to most experts by countries doing things in their own ways, by rival and distinct ways. Therefore, countries will collaborate, as Michael Sullivan says, based on values. You can see that this change is already taking place with the internet. You're going to say, what? The internet? The epitome of globalization? Look, Google used to have 30% of the market share in China, and now it has close to 0%. And the big regions of the world increasingly look at the internet from a values-based point of view. America values tech innovation and its financial rewards. China takes a political view of the internet and restricts it, while also having the most powerful e-commerce e market. And then there is Europe, and in Europe, a conversation about the internet is effectively a conversation about data and privacy. Of course, every region that I have mentioned does focus on other areas too. But you can see that indeed, each one of them is starting to focus more on the values that it supports. What's another example? Scotland, Iceland and New Zealand. What do they have in common? Geographically, they do not have anything at all. They are far away, they are as far away as you can get. But, here's the but of the story. They have come together under the Wellbeing Economy Governance Program, under this common value of valuing well-being more, even if, even if that leads to lower short-term growth. In addition, China's whole system is essentially a contract in which people will sacrifice their liberty in return for order, prosperity, and national prestige. The state is very much in control, 
which is something that most Europeans and Americans would find bizarre. It's the fact that China is pursuing its own path for its own values, while the US is doing so as well. Deglobalization. That's the name. Also, one final thing to note is that it is not only about Europe, the US or China. It is about the quote-unquote smaller countries like Bangladesh and Nigeria. In a value-driven world, they will have an opportunity to follow the path that they want. They will have to follow a path and form alliances with the countries or regions which share these common beliefs. To conclude, I believe these two opinions provide a good ending to today's episode. Pierre-Olivier Gauvinchas, the IMF's chief economist, describes a sudden geopolitical shift that reveals hidden underlying fault lines. He warns of a world fragmenting into quote-unquote distinct economic blocks with different ideologies, political systems, technology standards, cross-border payment and trade systems, and reserve currencies. On, on the other hand, a more fragmented world, says Singapore's Tharman Shanmugaratnam, makes greater investment in global public goods even more urgent. An effort, he argues, will require unprecedented public-private co- collaboration and a stronger, more effective multilateralism. Now, I would like to end today's episode on deglobalization and its impacts both on the near term and the long term. Thank you for tuning in and we will meet again on next week's podcast.